letter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Once again, uh, these chapters are tough chapters. Uh, having or being a parent of young children, I do not envy those of you parents who have young children who are listening uh, to these sermons. And just know, if they have any questions, you can send them to Kenny, and Kenny will answer all of the questions. But no, these, uh, these matters are very important for us, and we shouldn't shy away from them. This is God's Word. He has given His Word to us that we might know the truth, and we need to deal with all of God's Word, not just the parts that we like. And let me remind you, this is God's good and kind and gracious word that he has given to you and for you this morning. So give attention to it. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall then I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God. In your body. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's ask for the Lord to help us understand this word. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. I pray that, uh, that you would help us to be challenged by your word today, to be convicted of our sin, but also, Father, to recognize uh, the glory of Jesus Christ as he has manifested himself in your creation, especially in our bodies. Lord, I pray that you would cause us by your word and by the spirit that dwells in your people to glorify you with our bodies. Help us to understand these things for your sake and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So, what you think about your body actually matters. And how you think about your body actually matters. There is a fantastic book that was released in late 2018, early 2019, by a woman named Nancy Piercy, and it's, it's called uh, uh, Love Thy Body. It is a fantastic, fantastic uh, book to help you understand the importance of, uh, of your body as God has given it to you. So I don't have time to dive into the complexities of the nature of the body and the importance of the body. 
Uh, But just know that book in particular has been a tremendous help to me in understanding the things that we're going to talk about here today. So I commend it to you for that reason. Um, I I hope all of you go home and you order a copy of it and you read it. It's it's really fantastic. Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. Um, It deals with all sorts of stuff, uh, the modern issues of transgenderism, uh, the uh, issues of homosexuality, issues of heterosexuality, all of those things from a biblical perspective. Fantastic. Um, but one of the things that she talks about in this book is, is the nature of your body and the way she goes through the history of how various cultures have understood the importance of the body. And what we need to understand is that Paul is writing to a people who had, in some ways, a different understanding of the body than we do. Most of Greek society, most of Greek and Roman culture had a specific understanding of the physical world, namely that the physical world is in and of itself inherently evil. That the things of the physical world are evil. And the reason for that is because they said the spiritual is good, the physical is bad. And this had come down to them uh, through a long line of philosophers that presented these ideas. Spirit is good, physical world, material world is evil and bad. And so what a lot of Greek philosophy and Roman philosophers of the day were attempting to do, they were attempting to reconcile the fact that we were both spirit, they understood that we were spirit, but also that we had a body and how we needed to treat our body. And many of the philosophers in that day um, uh, the uh, two of them in particular, you see this in Acts chapter 17, uh, Mars Hill. When Paul goes to Mars Hill to preach the gospel there, he says there, and Luke tells us there, that you see two types of people, two different groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans and the Stoics were two groups of philosophers who essentially believed that the, the physical world was evil, but they diverged on how the physical world needed to be treated. So if you wanted to understand more, you can go there and look in Acts chapter 17 and read how Paul addressed these two groups. But just know that these two groups, one of them said that the best way to overcome the evil of the physical world is to avoid it altogether, is to remove yourself from it. Don't express any of the natural desires and inclinations that you have. And if you do, well, it's just a necessary evil that you have to participate in. But avoid them at all costs. And that means things like your hunger pains or sexual desires or any of those sorts of things. And then the other group said, well, no, the best way to overcome it is to fulfill all of those and just get it done with so that those desires aren't there in your body any longer. Well, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, this huge and important city that was very close to Athens, very influenced by this school of thought that said the body was in itself evil. And he's dealing with Christians in the Corinthian church who were saying the body is evil, the body is bad, and he is attempting to correct their faulty thinking. Now, what's interesting is that there were some in the Corinthian church who were expressing their views of the evilness of the body, of the the badness of the body, in curious ways, as we'll see in this passage. Um, All right, I want to look at this passage. uh, Well, first of all, before that, I just want to say that ideas have consequences. 
We see that all over the place. I mean, for example, Vladimir Putin has various ideas about how Ukraine, the Ukraine, should relate to Russia. Okay? His ideas have a lot of consequences. Well, he's the leader of a prominent country. You're not, perhaps, the leader of a prominent country. And yet, your ideas have consequences for yourself. The ideas that are in your head and how you think about your body has consequences for how you act in your body. So Paul is addressing the way that they think. And he is saying, look, you cannot follow the worldly views of the physical world and of the body and of the spirit. You need to have a biblical understanding of the body and of the spirit. So that's what he addresses here in Corinth. I'm going to look at this passage in three ways. Um, Notice through this, really interesting, side note as well, Paul um, centers right thinking about the body in the Trinity. In this passage, Paul talks about how we need to live in our bodies in light of the Father, how we need to live in our bodies in light of the Son, how we need to live in our bodies in light of the Spirit. And so the first point is that, that Paul makes in verses 12 and 14 is that your body is for the Father. Your body is for the Father. So he begins with this quote in verse 12. All things are lawful for me. Almost all English translations today have this in quotes. And most scholars, I think, are right in in thinking this, and that's why translations are following this. They think that Paul is taking phrases from the Corinthians and is giving them back to them as a way to address them. And so some of the people in Corinth are saying, all things are lawful for me. Now, they're saying that for a specific reason, because they had heard the good news of Jesus Christ, and they heard Paul preach that all of salvation comes by the grace of God, and when you are in Christ, then you are set free. And so they took their freedom in Christ as a license to express themselves however they wanted. So essentially, they misunderstood the gospel that Paul had preached to them. He's probably two to three years removed from being there with him in Corinth. And so in that time, they had begun to just leave and reject or forget conveniently the things that Paul had taught them. So you need to understand also that in the Corinthian church, there were two types of people. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. And the Jewish people had a very different view of the body than the Gentiles or the Greeks or the Romans. The Jews rightly understood that God the Father made both body and soul. And when God created man, he made him and he said, this is good. And then when he created woman, he said, this is very good. Okay. So in the creation of man and woman, God said it was good. And the Jews understood that. That the way that God created the body, that the body is in and of itself good. Because that's the way that God made it. And God said that it was good. But remember, the Gentiles did not believe that. The Greeks did not. They largely thought that the body was evil. So Paul is saying uh, to this, or or, then what likely was happening is you had all these Greek-speaking, Latin-speaking, Roman, Greek-type people who were saying, I can live my life the way that the Greeks do in sexual promiscuity. And the Jewish people in the church were saying, no, you can't. You can't do that. And so Paul is writing to correct them because here's essentially what they're saying. I can do what I want with my body. I've been set free in Christ. 
And Paul addresses that interestingly by saying, all things are lawful for me, in quotes, but, in the same, but not all things are helpful. Now, by doing this, he is not saying that it is allowed for you to do whatever you want to do. He is simply attempting to get them to recognize that they have to qualify what they think with something. So he says, you have to agree. Yes, okay, let's just say, hypothetically, that you can do whatever you want to do with your body. You can eat as much as you want. You can drink as much alcohol as you want. You can do whatever you want to do. Let's just say that you can do whatever it is that you want to do. But don't you recognize that if you do that, there's going to be some major consequences to your body if you do that? Well, yes, obviously. Everyone understands that. Everyone agrees that you can't do whatever you want to do with your body. And Paul is simply trying to get them to understand that. And then he goes on and he says this, another quote, verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. So here's, the, what, here's what was happening in Corinth. Once again, the people were saying, you know, God made food and he made my stomach and he made me with these hunger pains. And when I have these hunger pains, then I can eat whatever I want to eat and be filled. Because Paul said there was no restriction on the food. If I wanted to eat, I could eat. And that's true. And Paul then pulls back and he says, yes, it's true that food was made for the stomach and stomach was made for food. But you can't use that argument as a way to then express your sexual desires any way that you want to. Because that's exactly what was happening. The people were comparing their, their hunger pains with their sexual desires. And they're saying, well, if I have this hunger, then I can eat. And if I have this other desire, then I can just meet that any way that I want to. But notice what Paul says in verse 13. He says something really interesting. Food is made for the stomach and stomach is made for food, but God will destroy both. That's huge. Um, I don't know exactly what that means. There's a couple things in here that it's, it's hard to exactly understand what that means. Some people think that that means that we will not eat in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know. I really want to be able to eat in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know. I don't know. But he says there that you need to understand that God's going to destroy that. And you can't compare your hunger pains with your sexual desires. They're two different things. Comparing your, in doing that, you're comparing apples and oranges. And he says, for this reason, um, look, in verse, uh, look in verse 13 at the middle. The body, is, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So yes, it's true that stomach was made for food, but what was your body made for? What's the purpose of your body? Your body was made not to fulfill its desires. Your body was actually made for the Lord, to glorify the Lord, to glorify the Father. That is why you were made. And so Paul makes this point. He says, look, you need to understand what your body is for. Your body is for God. What's the application? Well, here's the, just the simple application. Your body is not made in order to just satisfy your appetites. The world tends to say that if you have an appetite, satisfy it any way you want to. Paul says no, because that's not why your body was made. Your body was made to glorify the Lord, and sometimes the Lord is glorified in you not satisfying your appetites. 
It's made for whatever purpose he has made it for. Your body also has only been made to be satisfied in the Lord. Uh, Just um, as a side note, C.S. Lewis has a great kind of statement on this, talking about how we are trying to fulfill our lives with all of these various things, with sex and alcohol and all of this stuff. It's like a child being offered a trip to the beach, but instead would like to just play in the mud at his house. That's what it's like. And the reality is that we have been made for the Lord to be satisfied in the Lord, to be given over completely to the Lord, not to these desires that he has given us. Not that these desires are bad or evil, but that we have been made for the Lord. And here's the thing, you are only, only be satisfied when you understand that you are for God the Father, that that is why you have been made. All right, second thing, verses 15 through 17. Your body is with the Son, with the Son. So your body is for the Father, but your body is with the Son in verses 15 through 17. Look at, look at what he says there. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? For the last couple of weeks we've seen this, that Paul has been trying to join together in the minds of the Corinthians their union with Christ. That they are in union with Christ. And because they are in union with Christ, they're also in union with each other. And Paul is going to come to this theme over and over and over again. And he says, do you not know? Now, they probably already knew this. If they didn't know this, they had simply forgotten it. And so when he says this, and he says this over and over and over, he is saying, I want you to think about this. I want you to have this at the very forefront of your mind. The very first thing that you need to think about in the morning is this very thing. Do you not know that you are members of Christ? This is a problem in the area of thinking. Paul's assumption is that their thinking needs to be changed because your thinking will always follow your actions. If you're doing something that's wrong, it's because you thought about it wrong first. So he says, I'm going to correct your thinking on this. And so what does Paul do? He points them to their union with Christ. Now, if you have a quarter this morning, you can pull out that quarter, the U.S. quarter, and you can look at it. And on that quarter, there's a little saying in Latin. It's probably in tiny, tiny print. So if you can't read it, get somebody with young eyes to read it for you. And it says this in Latin. E pluribus unum. Does anybody know what that means? E pluribus unum. Out of many, one. And the point is that that the the makers of the U.S. currency, the thing that they're trying to get across, and, and the thing that we are supposed to remember as citizens in the United States is that In this democracy, representative democracy, some people forget it's a representative democracy, but uh, that in this democracy, we are all one people, but we are many different people, but we are one. And one of the things that unifies us is that we use the same currency. Out of many, one. Well, essentially, that's what Paul is trying to get across to the people. You are members of, Of the same Christ. You are one body, ultimately. All of you together, individually, are members of one body. You are members of Christ. And Christ is the head. Again, this is a theme that he will return to over and over and over again. So it's a good idea to cement this in your head right now. You are members of Christ. 
that yes, you are individuals, but you come together as members in Jesus. And we're not just in unity with each other because we use the same currency, but we're actually metaphysically one body. Now that'll make your head spin and I hope it, you'll go home and think about what it means to be metaphysically one body with all of the members of Christ Jesus. But there it is. That's what Paul says. Do you not know that you are members of the Lord? Now apply this to Corinthians. Apply this to what's happening in Corinth. Here's what's going on. Here's the specific struggle. There were two major temples to Greek or Roman gods in Corinth. The temple to Aphrodite and the temple to Apollo. Aphrodite was the goddess of love and the things that, various things that come along with that. And then the uh, temple to Apollo. And Apollo was kind of, he was the god of war and the god of male beauty. So there's various things that go along with that. Now, uh, the temples were not just for, uh, not just centers of religious worship, although they were that. Uh, but they were centers of civic responsibility. It was big business. The temples drove the economy. And so if you wanted to be a good citizen of Corinth, according to the leaders of Corinth, then you would visit the temples. And it just so happened that visiting the temples meant that you would give your tithe, your offering there to the, the uh, priest at the temple who also just happened to be prostitutes. And you would engage in illicit activities with them as your civic duty. So here are Christians who have been transformed, brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And they are visiting these temples as their civic duty. Also, interestingly, and we're going to see this in the next couple chapters, there were some who were saying, you know, because our bodies are evil, I'm married and I shouldn't express my evil desires with my husband or my wife. I would be polluting them. Why not go and pollute a prostitute instead? And Paul stops and says, whoa, no, 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 no. That's not the way that this works. You need to understand that you have this new metaphysical reality. You are in union with Christ. And if you are going and visiting these temples to engage in these illicit relationships, do you not understand what you're doing? Because you're in union with Christ, you are then joining Christ to these prostitutes at the temple. That's an incredible thing that Paul says. That your actions and the things that you're doing with your body have those major metaphysical, spiritual, supernatural implications. And what's happening is that because they're doing that, there are these mystical, supernatural forces that the Corinthians are unleashing within the church within their families. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> but I know this, that the way that the scriptures deal with sexual union, is they say there's something happening there that is much bigger than you and I can understand. And in engaging in those unions outside of the boundaries that God has put up, which is one man and one woman, is dangerous for you individually, for the church also, for the other members in Christ. So Paul is saying, think about this. Do you not realize that because of who Christ is and what he has done for you, you are members of Christ. 
Now, there's two, uh, well, there's something else that he says here. Um, verse 16, or do you not know that he is he who is joined uh, to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. What does Paul do? He brings them all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, to the creation mandate. And he's saying that there's something really important that happens in marriage. The two become one. That is a sign uh, to us of the way that God becomes one with us in uniting himself to us. And then when you go unite yourself to others who are not in Christ, then you destroy the very symbol that, that God has given us to show his great love for us. Two applications. Your body is designed by Christ. And so you need to use your body the way that Christ would want you to use it. And here's what is so important. Sexual desire is God's design. It is part of God's plan. And it is meant to be expressed, as we're going to see in the following chapters, in the boundaries of the relationships that God has set up for his people. That's so important for young people to understand because we as a church believe that it is a good thing in a marriage. And that's the way that God designed it. And that's the way that it needs to be expressed. And that is a way to express also your union with Christ. Because it is your union with Christ is a way to show that you are, or because you're in union with Christ, you also are for Christ. And your body, because you're with Christ, needs to be used the way that Christ is glorified. And if you're in Christ by faith, then your fulfillment in this life will ultimately only come whenever you find fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That's very important for you to understand. That your desires do not identify who you are. Your desires do not make you who you are. But Christ does. And if Christ does, then you find your fulfillment in him and who he says you are. Last thing, and that is this, that your body is actually indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Your body is indwelled by the Holy Spirit in verses 18 through 19. Look at how he says, he comes right down to it in verse 18. He says, okay, for all of these reasons, flee from sexual immorality. Because every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Again, what does that mean? Oh, there's so much involved with that. Um, and I don't have time to unpack it, but my goodness. Um, there's so much that needs to be said. Here's, what, here's the main point. That these sexual sins are sins that so deeply affect who you are that it changes who you are. God has said in his word that his people are to be fruitful and multiply. That's the primary purpose of the marriage union, to be fruitful and to multiply. And we are to find fulfillment in that, in being fruitful and multiplying. That doesn't mean that providentially that it always works out the way that we want it to work out. But it's within the marriage union that, uh, that we find our freedom in Christ. 
But it's something really deeply important. The cultural mandate that God has given to his people. That if you are going against that cultural mandate and expressing yourself in whatever way you see fit, especially sexually, then you are going against the very first command that God had given, has given to humans. Again, it's a deeply important thing to recognize. It's even more dangerous, and that seems to be the point that Paul is making. There's something about this kind of sin that is more dangerous than other sins. It doesn't mean that it deserves more wrath from God, but personally, individually, the consequence for it for you and for your family is deeper. But he doesn't stop there. He says, do you not know, in verse 19, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Now, he does not mean that, that you individually, by yourself, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit because he's talking corporately to God's people together. And he's saying, don't you recognize that you together? Yes, individually, you have the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, but especially all of y'all together, you have the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. The point there is that if the Holy Spirit is inside of you, guess what? You are not your own Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So here's what that means. You do not have bodily autonomy. You do not have bodily autonomy. Fancy words that just means your body does not belong to you. If you are in Christ this morning, you do not have ownership over your body. Your body has been bought with a price. Somebody else has paid for your body. There's the big saying out there, my body, my choice, that was adopted by the feminist to promote uh, the abortion agenda that has been more recently adopted by conservatives in order to stop the uh, agenda of of uh, vaccine mandates. Let me just suggest to you, You cannot use that as an argument. You cannot say, my body, my choice. Now, that does not mean that governments have the right to infringe upon you and your body because the government does not own your body as well. Your body has been given to you by the Lord to steward. Just like your money has been given to you by the Lord to steward. Just like your family has been given to you by the Lord to steward. Just like everything that you have in the air that you are breathing has been given to you by the Lord. You are not your own. You cannot say, my body, my choice. You can say, the Lord's body, his choice. You are not your own. If you're in Christ this morning, you have been bought with a price. And the price was the price of Christ's own body that he willingly gave up for you. See, Christ had complete bodily autonomy. His body was his own. No one else owned it. And he gave up his body for you. He sacrificed his body as the price to purchase you, to bring you into his love and his care. For him to say, I own you. Be obedient to me. If you are owned by God, then God dwells in you. And sexual immorality is not something that you can or should express for all the reasons that have been mentioned here today. That's good news. Because you have been bought by Christ and you've been set free from sin. 
Paul says this at the beginning, but I will not be enslaved by anything. There's nothing in this world that will enslave the people of Christ because Christ already owns us and we are his slaves. And and that kind of slavery is freedom. I hope that you understand that. Now today we're about to partake of the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, whenever you take the bread, and I say this is the body of the Lord which is broken for you, you are claiming this passage for yourself. You are saying my body is not my own because the Lord has purchased my body for me. The Lord's Supper, in this we get a great picture that the Lord owns us, that we are his. And you are expressing your unity. You're expressing your unity with Jesus Christ. You're expressing your unity with each other. And you're saying my body is for him and with him and is indwelled by him. It's all his. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this word. And through the the deepness of the things that we've discussed here and the heaviness of these things, I pray that you would receive honor and glory for all of it. Help us.